Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is Historically Thinking. Most Americans think that they know something about the pilgrims based on a dimly remembered high school textbook, illustration, or perhaps even from a second grade Thanksgiving pageant. That the men wore stovepipe hats with brass buckles and carried blunderbusses, that they were the first settlers in America, had the first Thanksgiving, got on well with the Indians, and that they were the most important settlers of New England or the most influential. And just about all these things that we think we know are wrong. With me to discuss the pilgrims, their origins, beliefs, settlement, and their importance is John Turner, author of the new book, They Knew They Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty, published by Yale University Press in April. Is that right, John? In April? That's correct. John Turner is professor of religious studies at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. His previous works include the award-winning Brigham Young Pioneer Prophet, as well as Mormon Jesus, the place of Jesus Christ in Latter-day Saint, thought, artwork, and spirituality. John Turner, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks, Al. It's great to be with you. So there's a strange... Um, double view of the pilgrims. One is uh, what I described in the intro, which is sort of the thing that I think comes back to like drawing a Thanksgiving turkey with our hand, maybe in you know, kindergarten or, or first grade. And the other mm -hmm. one is sort of what I was raised on in grad school, um, that the uh, pilgrims, if they existed, they are of relatively no importance. Um, there's not much interesting in their thought. Uh, they're not as important as the Puritans. They're not as uh, crazy and, and, and fascinating as the Virginians. So um, briefly, if you could um, push back against that, um, what is how is that standard review? How how has that standard received you of scholars gone too far in one direction? Sure. Well, the first view that you mentioned that the pilgrims are sort of these righteous saints, sort of this contrast to the cannibals and selfish folks down at Virginia, um, you know, that that is really the fault of early 19th century Americans who just lionized the pilgrims in absurd ways, uh, made them not only these righteous saints, but also the progenitors of republicanism, religious freedom, democracy. Uh, all sorts of untenable uh, celebrations of the pilgrims. So that that sort of did need to go to the wayside. Um, and I think, we, if I might, we, we, that has a lot to do with 19th century history. It has a lot to do with the abolitionist movement. It has a lot to do. It's not an, it is not an accident, as Radio Moscow used to, used to say. It's not an accident that uh, Daniel Webster is the person that uh, inaugurates Plymouth Rock. Um, sure. Yeah. It's um, no, it's not yeah. an accident that in the sort of after in, in many ways, also the pilgrims become popular once congregationalists become Unitarians. Um, they seem to think, think of them as a kinder, gentler alternative to the Massachusetts Bay Colony of, of, of 1630. Exactly. No. So lots of lots of different Americans sort of remake the pilgrims in their own image and tend to remake them in really attractive ways. And, you know, that that just couldn't hold up. 
And then I'd say there are these two other standard views of the pilgrims, one of which is the other one that you mentioned that, you know, this is a small, backward, impoverished, insignificant colony. And then I would say that another sort of more recent view is sort of pilgrims as sinners rather than saints. You know, they're, they're just another part of the invasion of America, uh, English conquerors who, um, you know, formed a temporary expedient alliance with the Indians, but then fought them and took their land. Mm-hmm. And so you asked me to push back against uh, some of those views. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I would push back against all of them, at least to a certain extent. You know, mm-hmm. those those 19th century views of the pilgrims just didn't take them on their own terms, uh, didn't really treat them as human beings, uh, created all sorts of myths of Christian heroism um, around them. Um, but that doesn't mean that the pilgrims aren't really fascinating and compelling on their own terms. Uh, the other ones take a little bit longer to, to push back on. Um, but in terms of the significance of Plymouth Colony, I think it's better to, uh, again, take the history on its own terms, look at the way the pilgrims and other people in Plymouth Colony understood liberty and you know, examine their debates about it, uh, rather than to try to link the pilgrims in unsupportable ways to the American founding. Well, let's talk about the origin stories. Um, who were they? Uh, where did they come from? Uh, what did they believe? And, and what made them different from other people who seem on the face of it to be like them? I'm thinking of the people in Massachusetts Bay or the people in Rhode Island or along uh, Rhode, um, Rhode Island Bay, uh, Narragansett sure. Bay, um, or the people that in, in New London and then in New Haven. Um, what's, what's their background? So the the passengers on the Mayflower were a bit of a motley crew, but a majority of them were uh, what were called separatists or brownists, um, men and women who had thoroughly rejected the Church of England as corrupted with Antichrist and had separated themselves from it. I think of them really as radical Puritans. Uh, Puritans, you know, they shared sort of standard Puritan complaints about the Church of England, but they had concluded that it was irredeemable. And they had a somewhat different view of the church as a local covenanted uh, congregation. Only such churches were uh, true churches. And rather than waiting for the Church of England to become a true church, they withdrew from it, uh, formed their own churches. Many of them then fled from England uh, to Leiden in the Dutch Republic, uh, either at some point early in the the 1600s. And then when they decided they didn't want to stay in the Netherlands any longer, uh, they started looking for somewhere else to go, uh, aimed for somewhere around the Hudson River and ended up on Cape Cod. Um, so it's part of the confusion of the early 17th century is to separate them from other people. Um, 
it's mm-hmm. uh, it's I, I kind of think of this as a crucible in which there are different um, metals that are being melted down and reforming and joining with others and then coming apart so that many of their antagonists i mean they seem kind of like baptists but they're not quite baptists they seem mm-hmm. they are they are they there there are a lot of connections to the quakers even though eventually they mm-hmm. will persecute quakers and detest quakers all these people are sort of uh, are, are swirling around in this crucible of 17th century religious conflict but you use the term puritan and we've talked mm-hmm. a little bit about that with uh, michael winship in about his book mm-hmm. hot protestants um mm-hmm. Link to that episode in the show notes. But what? How do you define Puritan? How are they Puritan, and how are they unlike other Puritans? So, I mean, you know, let's start with Winship's book, which I like a lot. Uh, he calls them hot Protestants, uh, drawing on a description from, I think, around the year fifteen eighty. Uh, mm-hmm. These are individuals who who wanted to purify the. Church of England of what they understood as uh, things that were still too Catholic, uh, ceremonies not authorized um, by the Bible, um, church discipline uh, not exercised properly. So starting with that is hot Protestants. Separatists, I would call them the hottest Protestants. (laughs) Uh, You know, they were so hot they couldn't wait. Uh, You know, don't tarry was one of their watchwords. Hmm. You know, you have to separate now. So they were essentially Puritans who put all of their beliefs into practice immediately. And Puritans, you know, Puritans had a range of views about uh, proper biblical forms of church government. Separatists were Congregationalists. There were some Puritans who, many Puritans who were Presbyterian, uh, mm-hmm. who wanted, you know, different, different forms of church government. So the, the separatists, uh, they had that resolute commitment to congregational government. For them, that was part of Christian liberty, that Christians had the liberty to form a church, elect their own officers, govern membership, exercise discipline. Uh, that was liberty. Just parenthetically, there are distinctions between them and, say, Roger Williams or John mm-hmm. Winthrop. Um, for example, I'm, I'm thinking of Edmund Morgan's lovely elegiac biography of John Winthrop, which I increasingly mm-hmm. I think is the best biography of an American I've ever read, um, which he, basically his emphasis is that Winthrop, unlike the Brownists, unlike these pilgrims, he refuses to separate, even though he agrees with them. Mm-hmm. on so many things. He refuses to separate as Williams does. These seem to be very small distinctions to us. Did you struggle sure. in trying to make these distinctions uh, real uh, for the reader? Um, I, I know I've had a great deal of difficulty in how to make these distinctions real for students. Sure. So I think between, it's a great question because the distinctions do get a little bit fine. And Roger Williams spent a couple of years preaching in Plymouth Colony. Mm-hmm. So I definitely couldn't avoid uh, those distinctions. There's a, there, you know, I, I called the separatists in general the hottest uh, Protestants. Well, Roger Williams was an arch separatist. <laughs> and Williams, people think that Williams, Americans tend to think that Williams favored what he called soul liberty, so religious liberty. Uh, because, you know, he sort of liked all, all religious groups and churches 
actually Williams tended to loathe almost all of them. <laughs> he just didn't want uh, he didn't want the government corrupting uh, the true church, uh, yeah. which for him was incredibly narrow. So I would say one distinction is that both John Winthrop and then William Bradford and the other leaders at Plymouth, they saw some significant role. Winthrop, perhaps even more so than Bradford, saw some role for the civil government in regulating uh, church affairs, uh, whereas Williams favored a much stricter separation, uh, you know, an absolute really separation, put it in John F. Kennedy's language many years, centuries later, absolute separation between uh, churches and civil governments. Mm -hmm. So in in that way, uh, Winthrop and William Bradford of Plymouth are, and we'll get to this again, they're very much like other 17th century thinkers, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Calvinist, what have you. Right. right. Well, first of all, they, they are that way in the sense of thinking that there, sh there should only be one uh, religious option. Yes. Um, you know, the pilgrims would not compel anyone to join their church. Again, that's similar to Massachusetts Bay. Uh, the pilgrims go back and forth really on whether they will compel people to attend worship, uh, but they're certainly not going to force everyone to join because they don't think most people are fit for church membership. Uh, so there'd be no reason to make them join. They're not going to make people get their children baptized. Um, again, not everyone's qualified uh, for that. Uh, through their own uh, church membership. Uh, but there should only be one religious option. Uh, it's, it's fine to have a certain liberty of conscience in terms of if you disagree with that, you don't have to, you don't have to sign up. Uh, but you can't start, you know, you can't openly express uh, religious dissent, nor can you establish a competing uh, religious alternative. And that causes no end of conflict in both Massachusetts Bay and in Plymouth Colony. Mm -hmm. So that explanation um, in, indicates to a certain extent why the pilgrims, um, w when the, those who left England the, of the Brownists, uh, why they became, some of them became uncomfortable in the Netherlands and Leiden. It was just too freewheeling for them, the, the Dutch Republic. It was too freewheeling for them. They do complain about that, uh, you know, that other folks aren't observing the Sabbath. There are all sorts of other religious options that is um, uncomfortable uh, for them. There, there are there are a number of reasons why they leave. You know, it's sort of grinding poverty for them there. Uh, they're also really worried that their children will not stick with their church will not retain their Englishness. Mm -hmm. uh, they also think that their own exercise of liberty is tenuous in the Dutch Republic. Um, the Dutch Republic actually, by the time they leave, is in a period of religious tension and sort of a crackdown on um, alternative religious options. Um, so there's a, there's a number of reasons why why they consider leaving. Now the ones who perhaps have cooler heads, uh, they'd sort of rather be Dutch than dead. You know they don't want to <laughs> they don't necessarily want to risk their their lives for this. But a subset of the congregation chooses to leave and has the means to leave. And 
those become the majority of the Mayflower passengers. Who, who had they been in England? Had they been landowners? Um, the majority of the congregation, I know it's difficult. We can't talk, can't talk about all of them. And, and how many are there that, that are in Leiden in that congregation? Well, it's a, it's a congregation of a few hundred pastored okay. by a minister named John Robinson. Actually, not all of those are English. Uh, some of them are Dutch. Uh, some of them are Flemish. So they, they attract um, some other Reformed or sort of Calvinist-leaning um, Protestants who are in Leiden as well. Mm -hmm. But most of them are English. They come from a number of different communities uh, in England. There are a few who are more uh, well-to-do. Uh, but for the most part, these are very ordinary folks, uh, people who had been grocers or printers or uh, farmers. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're not really not a lot of high and mighty folks uh, mm. among the pilgrims. So a minority of them, of this congregation, decides to take the chance in being dead, better dead than Dutch. Um, mm -hmm. And they get in their head to go to the 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 Western Hemisphere, to go to the New World, a different or a very different world. The first thought they, how, how do they arrange that and what do they have to do to do that? You know, it's, it's sort of a, an almost uh, desperate would be slightly too strong of a term, but a somewhat chaotic uh, process of trying to get permission and a patent. Uh, they get one from the Virginia company. Uh, so they're initially heading to what they would consider uh, Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, they also explore the idea of going to what later becomes New Netherland. They ask the Dutch uh, government for permission to go there. The uh, Dutch government doesn't really want to plant a an English colony on land that it wants uh, for itself. So that, you know, they're sort of searching around the... Uh, English officials generally are happy for religious dissidents uh, to go to the New World. You know, they're, they're probably half of them are going to die anyway, <laughs> and you at least keep them away from England. But they also don't want to officially sanction it. And the Crown is just in the process of uh, granting a patent uh, for, for New England uh, to a new group of investors so it's a it's a complicated uh, situation. They in the end they essentially show up somewhere they don't have any permission to settle uh, or to establish a government on, and they have to scramble afterwards. And actually, because Plymouth never gets a charter, uh, the way that the Massachusetts Bay uh, colonists get, um, they're sort of always in a precarious political uh, position vis-a-vis -vis the English government. Could you explain that? Because that's such an important part of 17th century colonial life, political life, is the charter or lack thereof. I mean, Winthrop, they very cleverly bring the charter with them, um, but no one else does. I mean, no one else. It's what, what, why, why is that precarious? Well, you know, and I actually, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it, but mm. Uh, because even the Massachusetts Bay folks found that the crown could take away its charter, uh, yes. which happens in the, in the 1680s. So ultimately, pieces of paper uh, are only worth uh, so much. But the, the pilgrims uh, don't have sort of the royal seal of approval. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, uh, they get a patent 
from um, a company uh, headed by uh, a man named Ferdinand, Ferdinando Gorges. And so he gives them a patent based on his charter. Well, you're sort of one step removed from the royal seal of approval. Um, and it wasn't really clear uh, if, that, if that patent was, was really valid. And at times, English officials remind uh, Plymouth leaders of this. You know, they tell them, you know, you're, you're in a weak spot. And um, they, they never achieve anything better than that. Um, I suppose in the end, as I suggested, you know, this, this only matters so much. It sort of added an element of precariousness. But if you were ultimately at the mercy of the crown anyway, uh, mm -hmm. patents and charters were only worth so much. So the patent comes from this, from Gorgeous. It doesn't come from the Virginia company. Um, they, and go on. Right. They, they get one from the Virginia company, but then since they don't end up in Virginia, they have Got to it. scramble and get another one. So they took the wrong way. They ended up in the wrong place. Where were they supposed to end up? I've, I've never been clear on that. Yeah, they were aiming for somewhere around the Hudson River. It's okay. not entirely clear, maybe just north of the Hudson. Mm -hmm. And when they get to Cape Cod, they, you know, they realize where they are and they begin heading south, but it, the going is too rough and they turn back. Okay. Um, and so they, they end up in what's now southeastern New England. So how many people are on the Mayflower then when, it, when it, they finally arrive after their voyage? So 102 uh, passengers, uh, roughly. It's, you know, it's possible that William Bradford's list wasn't uh, complete, but it's generally accepted to be 102. Uh, and then 30 or so crew members. So while they're there, I mean, and how many are of that 102 are members of the church? Because I think that's an important distinction. So again, it's not entirely clear, uh, but certainly a majority. It used mm -hmm. to be the case that historians would talk about, um, you know, sort of a balance of saints and sinners, if you will, on the Mayflower that maybe the separatists were only a tyrannical minority. Mm. But more recently, uh, historians have, I think, pretty firmly established that they had a majority. Uh, the thing is, there isn't a membership lift list for the Leiden congregation. So in some cases, you can't know for sure. Mm -hmm. And there's some individuals like uh, the famous pilgrim military captain, Miles Standish, uh, subject of a popular... 19th century poem. Uh, he might not have been a member of the congregation, but he was very friendly, at least with its minister, and at least was sympathetic uh, to the congregation's principles. Well, before we get to the arrival, um, let's talk, can we talk about some of these personalities? Um, who are some of the, um, we've talked about John Robinson, who is pastor in Leiden. He remains in Leiden. Mm -hmm. um, who are some of the personalities that come over uh, with the Mayflower that will be important for the next uh, several decades, one of them in particular. Sure. So William Bradford is sort of the linchpin of any history of the early portion of the colony. Uh, he became governor after the initial governor, governor John Carver, uh, died during the first winter. And then Bradford is on the scene uh, until his death in 1657, and he writes um, a rather detailed 
history of the colony and left behind some other writings as well. So Bradford's um, of prime importance. Uh, Edward Winslow uh, is probably the most cosmopolitan and savvy uh, of the pilgrims. Uh, he was a printer uh, who became also an important political leader. Uh, Winslow has some fascinating writings about some early interactions and conversations with Wampanoags, uh, in particular, some discussions of Christianity uh, with them, more so than most of the other colonists. He takes uh, missionary work um, somewhat seriously. So th those two are very important. Um, there, you know, I could go down the list, but I'll, I'll stop there unless you want more. Al. Yeah, well, it, it, how about Miles Standish? Because I seem to remember him from, you know, Thanksgiving pageants yeah. of, of years past. Yeah, so there's that 19th century poem, Courtship of mm -hmm. Miles Standish, which is a really fun love triangle. Um, Standish is a really fascinating figure because he's he's hot headed. You know, his approach, you know, if, if trouble arises, uh, with the Indians, it's sort of better to behead first and ask questions later. Uh, so, you know, he he's responsible for some atrocities uh, against uh, Native people during the colony's uh, first several years. He's even chastised by uh, John Robinson, the separatist minister, uh, for being so rash and for killing rather than converting uh the natives um so he's not he's not hesitant to throw his weight around he also uh lives uh for several decades so he remains on the scene as a as an influential figure one thing i would i would say about all of the figures that i just mentioned you know there's this idea you mentioned perry miller at the outset mm -hmm. who i don't think really mentions Plymouth at all in his New Inter England mind. I think he mentioned you know, it just, once in the introduction to Passover. May, to, maybe once in the intro, intro yeah. to Passover, but as far as he's concerned, the minds of Plymouth Colony really are not worth mentioning. Nope. And one thing that I found, um, and I'm really building on the work of um, the historian Jeremy Bangs on this, is Bradford, Winslow, uh, Miles Standish also, these were very well-read uh, individuals who had large libraries who were pretty well-versed in uh, contemporary uh, religious uh, debates. You know, Plymouth was much smaller than Massachusetts Bay, but it, it really wasn't an isolated backwater. It was still part of this transatlantic world. Mm -hmm. Now, you've, we've, mentioned, you've mentioned several men so far. Are, do any women uh, pop out of the records um, as having any formative, as having formative influence that we, that is recorded on the colony? Sure. Well, formative influence is, is a little bit tricky. Sure. But, you know, right from the start, uh, women play very significant roles in the story there. They're very significant for the development of uh, separatism in England. So often that began with sort of small acts of rebellion against the church. Uh, there's a woman who's only known as Mrs. Chilton because her uh, given name uh, is unknown. Um, 
she and her husband, James, were Mayflower passengers. She's first known as a separatist because she refused um, to um, attend Church of England burials. So she was excommunicated, excommunicated for attending unauthorized private burials of children. So the separatists thought that the way the Church of England buried individuals with the sign of the cross and so forth wasn't authorized by the Bible. They favored really simple burials. So and you can see those sort of individual um, acts of rebellion. In terms of the early history of the colony, it'd be harder to make a case for influence, but only because uh, you know we have writings from William Bradford Edward Winslow and these other men, um, it's it is a little bit harder to trace that sort of influence in terms of uh, women. It is also, though, I would say also in contrast to Virginia, which you brought up at the outset, um, the Mayflower passengers for this time period they were they were unusual. Uh, there were large <laughs> numbers of women on board. There were. Um, couple of women who gave birth either during the crossing or um, while waiting to sort of find a place of settlement once they once they reached uh, New England. So women are a very important part of the story from the get-go. Yeah, the, um, the Puritans and the Pilgrims are both unusual. They, they bring families. Right. Um, they even have a child that famously is born on, on the Mayflower. Um, that doesn't happen on the first voyages to Virginia. <laughs> That's not part no. of their story. And it, uh, you I, know, I, I mean, it's it's it, it is it is interesting. And you know, some some families decided the risk was too great, and some men uh, left families behind and brought them over later. Mm -hmm. uh, others decided they they just absolutely would not be separated, and so they came as families. So shortly after sighting land or anchoring before they landed, uh, they draft the Mayflower Compact. What is it? Uh, what is it not? And why is it important? Sure. So the Mayflower Compact is really a makeshift uh, political agreement uh, before the settlers go ashore. And it's sort of funny that they didn't come up with something, <laughs> you know, during the couple months they had at sea. But once they show up, you know, they realize there's some they they are going to land somewhere uh, for which they aren't going to have a patent. So they sort of have to figure out how they're going to govern themselves. Some people are getting restless because since they don't have a patent, they're not bound by anything. Maybe you know they can just strike out on their own. So in the, in the end, they they agree to uh, this compact which essentially states that they're just that they're going to form a body politic, you know, political, um, political entity, and that they're going to elect officers and pass laws and that they're all going to have to obey those officers and laws. So it sort of has that basic principle of political liberty in terms of consent uh, being of prime importance. And after uh, at least nearly all of the adult men on the Mayflower sign the compact. They elect a governor and are able to go ashore. Um, it's not a grand statement of political principles. It's very short 
Uh, it's not a religious document. Um, there's no hashing out of relationship between church and state or, or anything else. I do think that basic principle of consent uh, remained important. The compact itself remained uh, important to the leaders of Plymouth Colony uh, for the rest of the 17th century. So Americans, certainly in the 19th century, they, they made the Mayflower Compact uh, into far too much as sort of the founding document of American republicanism, which it wasn't. Uh, but it was an agreement to, to work together to elect officers to obey laws that the body politic enacted. What is um, what I think is very cool, why I love to teach the Mayflower Compact, is that it's, it is such a wonderful manifestation of, of political culture, which is otherwise not to be seen or discerned. Um, these guys aren't John Locke. They're not Thomas Hobbes. They're simple mm -hmm. people. Uh, and yet they understand how one creates a social contract. They mm -hmm. understand how one creates a commonwealth, and it's all there. Um, it's long before uh, long before Locke writes the second treatise on government. You can see these these brownists, these the dregs of English society. They're coming right. up with a commonwealth, uh, a, something that will give political health to all those who participate in that polis. Um, it's like page one of Aristotle's Politics. It's all those things all right there. Right. Well, and the fact that it's done on the fly and yeah, it's not lofty, you know, that, that sort of proves the point you're making, I think, almost that, you know, they they had these basic political principles um, and, and could put them into action. It's, you know, whenever the colony uh, revised its laws subsequently, they would begin by reading the Mayflower Compact, hmm. but they didn't call it Mayflower Compact. You know, that exact phrase comes from a bit later on, but they regarded it as uh, fundamental to their policy. That's, I, I did not realize that. Yeah, certainly um, it is enacted in part to put an end to factionalism mm -hmm. and to guard against people just striking out on their own. Um, so it's an expedient in that sense. But it's also occurred to me there are cruder ways of getting people to behave than yes. having them sign a political document. Yeah. Uh, take, take for example, 1614 in Jamestown, you know, 1612, 1614, just to put in martial law right. and have, have Miles Standish enforce it. I mean, they could have done right. that. Um, it would have been perfectly accept. It would have been acceptable within the realm of possibilities at the time. A absolutely, and the, you know, the separatists did have a clear majority. They could have imposed themselves on the minority. If they hadn't had a majority, they wouldn't have had their own elected as governor, mm -hmm. um, both in 1620 and in subsequent years. So they arrive in what they eventually will call Plymouth, Plymouth Bay. Um, and then it's, what time of year do they arrive? Well, they show up off the coast of, coast of Cape Cod uh, in November of 1620, mm -hmm. which is a terrible time uh, to show up uh, because it's basically already winter. Um, it's already deep winter by the time they select uh, Plymouth itself. Uh, as the site of their settlement. So they're really up against it. They, a lot of people have been living on the boat uh, since early August. Uh, 
their their supplies have dwindled. They're getting scurvy. You know, they're malnourished. They're exposed to the elements. So, as you can imagine, it's it's a disaster for the first year. I mean, in most most colonies, even if it had been done perfectly, most colonies were a disaster for the first year anyway. Right. Um, yeah. But they're they're up against it. So, in that first year, how many of the hundred and two settlers on the Mayflower die? Roughly half. Roughly half. Yeah, yeah. Pro- approximately half. Uh, really high death rates, January, February, and March. Um, some deaths into April. Then things then things get better, and um, you know they can of course feed themselves over the summer. They do have a pretty good harvest uh, that year, um, and things are a little tenuous sometimes in terms of food supply. Is more settlers arrive the next couple of years, but uh, the immediate crisis passes. So part of the story is who they meet. Um, so mm-hmm. and how they begin to get along or not get along with the surrounding mm-hmm. with the surrounding Native Americans. So can you tell that story uh, as as it happened sure. rather than sort of as as we imagine it is happening? Sure. Well, the first thing that is absolutely critical to know is that the Wampanoags, which is the designation most commonly used for the native communities of southeastern Massachusetts, um, they had endured an apocalyptic previous several years, um, an yeah. epidemic um, brought by uh, Europeans had begun sometime around the year 1616 and had wiped out uh, some communities, including the one um, at Plymouth itself, a community that had been known as Patuxet, and had greatly reduced Wampanoag numbers uh, in other places. Uh, some other um, native peoples of southeastern New-, New England had suffered similarly. Some peoples uh, were not as affected by this particular epidemic, but uh, were afflicted uh, later on. So the pilgrims are arriving really onto this landscape of death. They see a lot of graves. They see abandoned houses. Um, so the Wampanoags had endured a tremendous amount of suffering and misery over the previous several years. You know, there's there's sort of an American fixation on the hardships of the pilgrims during their first winter much less attention paid uh, to this epidemic uh, that really devastates uh, Wampanoag communities. To say, say so a little bit, to say a little bit more about that, because this is a little bit relevant to while we're talking, um, along the Charles River where uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts is, uh, one estimate has that 90% of the natives along the Charles died. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if we can believe such facts. I mean, the Black Death at its worst is probably 50, 50% of places like Florence and other medieval cities, um, 90, sure. 90% fatalities. And it is, I mean, there's there's been some pushback lately, which I don't really, I don't think is, I mean, I'm a doctor of, of history, not of virology, but um, it, we can see what's, when a new virus, as we can see with COVID-19, when it comes uh, to a host which has never experienced it before or hasn't experienced it, in the case of Native Americans for 14,000 years, 
they have been a population unto themselves and have not experienced the rest of the, the viruses and bacteria co common to Eurasia and Africa. Uh, and therefore, they are biologically unprepared to deal with it. And that's why we have these outright these incredible fatalities amongst native population. Um, you can see the same thing with smallpox. Curiously mm -hmm. enough, you can see the same thing with smallpox to people of English descent. Um, all the way through the American Revolution, uh, there'll be smallpox will arrive from Europe and it will spread um, like a virus through the the American born English people or Germans or whoever, because they're, they're simply the population. It's not endemic. It's, it's they're not they're unused to that virus. They're not not biologically capable of resisting it. So, OK, that's the little little sidebar finish there. No, absolutely. I mean, it's it's. You know, it's such a well. I think apocalyptic's the right term, and yeah. the comparison to the plague is is quite reasonable. So you have societies that are really reeling, and I don't think, at least in some cases, that ninety percent estimate is overblown. No, even, um, they found know. places where, as you said, they, where it's just I think they might have found. If I can recall, there's some places where they found skeletons of people who had buried everyone else, and then they just died themselves. I mean, they find really absolute apocalyptic devastation all around them. Right. Well, and this is very significant for Plymouth's uh, survival. Uh, the uh, Wampanoag Sachem, uh, Usamequin, uh, whom the English just called by his um, sort of honorific Massasoit, he sizes up the situation when the pilgrims show up. You know, his people have been devastated. Some of their neighbors have been less devastated. He's in a position of weakness. And the pilgrims appear um, not very threatening and as potentially valuable um, allies, not mm -hmm. least because of their weaponry. So, you know, the sort of standard view of thanksgiving that americans get is that the natives are you know they're they're happy welcoming people uh who are pleased to have new neighbors uh, new folks move into the neighborhood uh in reality you know they are extremely uh beleaguered at the time and they make an opportunistic decision to form uh an alliance <laughs> Certainly, there's there's something to celebrate in two peoples finding a, a way to coexist and get along, um, but these are these are first and foremost very pragmatic uh, decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's if we think of them as as closer to of native leaders uh, as well uh, closer to Renaissance princes, we're more on the mark. Um, they they are they're they're statesmen, they, and they have they have goals. Right, and it's a it's a complicated um, political arrangement among Wampanoag communities. So, sort of that uh, chief of chiefs or mm -hmm. sachem of sachems. Um, he, in particular, needs new allies in a way to bolster his own authority in the wake of the epidemic. So, mm -hmm. um, and not every, not all, not all Wampanoag communities are on board with his decision to ally with the Pilgrims. There were certainly communities that would have preferred to attack them because other English uh, traders and ship captains have, uh, they've sh shown up and have kidnapped uh, men and women and dragged them back to 
Europe. So there's all sorts of reasons to be suspicious. And Usamequin really makes, um, in some ways, a, a pretty bold uh, decision to, to forge this alliance. Well, let's let's follow on this line of approach with the sort of with the Wampanoags because um, we're already at about forty five minutes into the conversation, um, and we don't have all the time in the world. So let's just pursue this because it doesn't turn out well. By sixteen thirty seven, the Pilgrims are engaged in the what could be called the first Pequot War. Um, how does this how does this relationship sour? You already described it, but Miles Standish had committed some earlier, had committed some atrocities against uh, neighboring Indians. Were these against other Wampanoags or what was, the, what was, how did this happen? Those were against Massachusetts uh, Indians. Oh, that's all right then. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. yeah the, Wamp- the Wampanoags no. didn't care, but yeah, yeah. No, you know, but yeah, I would say in a, in a more general, to, to take your question in a, in a broader sense, the Pilgrims, very much want to be the regional military power uh, from the get-go. They don't hesitate to throw their weight around. Um, They are pleased when some of those atrocities leave some Native communities shaken and uh, scared, at least as the pilgrims uh, interpret it. The uh, pilgrims also understand, I think like most English um, thinkers do. They understand these epidemics really as God's handiwork of clearing the land uh, for Christian settlement. And the pilgrims have their eye on pretty much all of uh, Wampanoag land uh, at a pretty early, early point. And gradually, over the, as the decades pass, uh, Wampanoags control less and less land, and it really comes to a head uh, in the 1670s between the more western Wampanoag uh, communities uh, that are in the eastern part of present-day Rhode Island, but then part of Plymouth Colony, and Plymouth's leaders. You know, finally, um, after decades of sort of dispossession and humiliation. Um, some Wampanoag sachems decide to fight back. And so, you know, that the bloodiest war in 17th century New England, known as King Philip's War, begins in Plymouth Colony because as far as the Wampanoags are concerned, you know, the trajectory of events, it just becomes untenable. This is their last stand. Uh, Yes, in terms of you know, directing their own affairs yeah. and controlling their own land. And that's what's called uh, King's Phillips War um, by the, the uh, New England settlers. Um, we could call it the second, I guess, the second Wampanoag, the second Pequot War, 1675, or, 1678. Yeah. Yeah. Or Metacom's War. Metacom's War. Uh, yeah. um, and it's David's the, go on. Go ahead, Al. And it is the bloodiest war per capita, I think, in American history. Well, and it's, it's devastating for both English and Native communities, really across um, New England. It begins in Plymouth Colony, but it, it spreads, you know, way up into present-day Maine um, and, and far to the west as well. Ultimately, uh, the English might not have prevailed even then uh, without large numbers of Native allies uh, the Wampanoags themselves by that time were very much divided um, 
a n substantial number, especially on Cape Cod, had uh, affiliated themselves with Christianity um, and remained allied uh, with the English. After and the the war was devastating for those Western Wampanoag communities. Large numbers of them are enslaved. Uh, many are exported uh, out of New England. It's it's absolute devastation. Can we um, go back a little, uh, quite a bit, uh, fifty years before that, back to sixteen twenty four? And I just wanted to tie mm -hmm. things up by uh, considering um, liberty and freedom. Um, in 1624, well, twice, um, Plymouth moves against uh, Thomas Morton and his community at Marymount, which I think is, is that near present-day Quincy, Massachusetts? Yes, uh, it is. And um, why did they, who was he, what were these two versions of liberty that were at war? And let's just conclude there by, just, uh, by then also moving on to the sort of subtitle of your book about the contest for American liberty. So Thomas Morton is just one of the most colorful uh, <laughs> characters in the 17th century history of English settlement. He's sort of a minor player in a commercial venture that for the most part involves some trade, but also the bringing of servants from England to sell in Virginia. Um, you know, just sort of one step removed from uh, slave trading, uh, almost. And Morden uh, ends up sort of at a way station uh, with some of those servants uh, on Massachusetts Bay, like you said, near present-day Quincy. He takes charge, sort of leads a bit of a mutiny uh, against his other partners, and establishes a trading outpost that becomes known as Marymount. And it's not in any way within uh, Plymouth's uh, jurisdiction, but Morden becomes really a commercial threat to Plymouth because he aggressively uh, seeks out furs and is willing to trade weapons for them. Hmm. And that makes it hard for... Plymouth's traders to compete. Uh, Plymouth has debts that they need to pay, so they need to do well in the fur trade, and so they move against Morden. Um, Morden does have this very different sense of liberty in terms of liberty to trade, uh, sort of merriment, uh, anyone's welcome, uh, certainly no uh, established church or anything like that. So it's a very different uh, vision of New England settlement. Um, Plymouth moves against Morden, arrests him, ships him back to England. Uh, he keeps coming back. He's really hard to get rid of. Uh, eventually, the Bay Colony uh, burns down his outpost and ships him back to England again. Um, and he writes just a charming... Um, humorous uh, book uh, called New English Canaan uh, in the 1630s and just skewers the folks uh, at both Plymouth and Boston. So what is the Pilgrim conception of liberty? So the Pilgrim conception of liberty, first and foremost, is the Christian liberty that we talked about earlier. Uh, the freedom of Christians 
to form true churches, elect their own ministers and elders and deacons, and to govern themselves. The, sort of an element of almost democratic Christianity, uh, if you will. And then also that idea of uh, political liberty resting on consent. Um, but the thing is, in Plymouth Colony, there's not just a single conception of either religious or political liberty. There are um, different settlers with different ideas about Christian liberty and political liberty, Quakers, Baptists, people who just want to keep aloof uh, from the churches. And so the settlers of Plymouth Colony have these recurring debates about the meaning and extent of both religious and political liberty. And so that, that to maybe this is stretching it, but that's the beginning of a very fine American tradition. Absolutely. I mean, I think in general, Americans down to the present day, Americans all talk about cherishing liberty, but they understand it really differently and they disagree about who's entitled to it as well. Mm -hmm. My guest today has been John Turner. He's the author of They Knew They Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty, published by Yale University Press in time, but several months ahead, very cleverly, for the 400th anniversary of the founding of the Plymouth Colony. John Turner, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks, Al. Really a pleasure to be with you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.